This is the Equip Podcast hosted at Rocky Creek in Greenville, South Carolina. This weekly course seeks to equip our church for the work of ministry. Hope it will help you as well. something we're calling Ask Pastor Trav. It's Sunday evening stream coming to you right now because you're stuck inside, I'm stuck inside, and so we thought maybe this would be a great opportunity for us to get around God's Word together. So normally on Sunday nights, I teach a course called Equip at our church where uh, what I'll do is I'll go through a different course, whether it's uh, hermeneutics, how to learn to study the Bible or an Old Testament survey. Right now we're going through a New Testament survey, but uh, obviously with the COVID-19 pandemic that's going on throughout the world, uh, we've been recommending not to be out in public in groups of more than 10. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to do something different. Uh, Maybe you're like me trying to look for something uh, really good and helpful to do right now. And uh, we all know there's no sports on television. There's not a lot of other stuff going on, right? Uh, So maybe this will help out a lot. So what I did was I asked for some uh, questions that maybe people had regarding the Bible. And I got some good questions about what does the Bible speak to regarding certain issues. So what I want to do is I got five questions I want to go through tonight uh, to sort of point you to truth and hope this will help you out in your walk. All right, question number one is this. If Jesus died on Friday, then shouldn't he have come back on Monday? Now, this is someone who is uh, reading the Bible and the thought about that Jesus raising on the third day seems a little bit odd because maybe you're aware of this, that uh, we celebrate the death and the sacrifice of Jesus on a Friday, but yet we celebrate his resurrection on a Sunday. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? Well, if you would think, well, Friday would be when he died, then on the third day, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, would that be the day he should rise? So let me help you understand how that kind of works together. So um, one of the things is is the reason why Jesus didn't uh, die on Friday and get up just a few hours later or on Saturday morning would be that he wanted to make sure everybody understood he was dead. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't sick. He wasn't just needing some medical help. He actually was dead and in the grave. And so with that type of time between Friday and Sunday, being in the grave, you realize this, that it wasn't that he was just sick. He was dead. But this was also to fulfill the prophecies that he himself even gave. Uh, In Matthew 12, 40, he said this way, just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So even uh, during his life, he said that he would be uh, dead for three days, and on the third day he would rise. Matthew 16, 21, he said, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And even the way he said it, he said on the third day that he would be raised. Matthew 27, 63, some of his enemies remembered it, even though his disciples had forgotten. He said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And then even in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, when he was talking about the temple of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. So here are these prophecies that Jesus even said that on the third day he would rise, so it had to be fulfilled in that level. But also if you go back to the Old Testament in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, uh, the prophet says it this way, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, 
He will revive us, but on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord and listen to this. His going out is as sure as the dawn, the time of day when the sun rises. He will come to us as just showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So here are these prophecies about that on the third day that this figure would rise. And so, so what's important is, is that Jesus actually died on Friday, which was the day that the Jewish people were celebrating the Passover, the Passover feast celebrated on Nisan 14, uh, that time of month, that time of year, um, was when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, and you remember that when God was releasing his people from slavery, that the 10th plague was called the plague of the Passover, to where God was sending out uh, his wrath against the people. And unless a Passover lamb was the substitute for those people, they would have to suffer God's judgment as well. So a pure sacrificial lamb had to be killed, no bones broken, and the blood had to be applied on the doorpost of the house so that when God's judgment come, he would pass over those doors, right? And so you would think, well, what a coincidence. Now, this is serious God's sovereignty that Jesus was crucified on that day that they were celebrating. And so on the Jewish calendar, the way they would celebrate is that any type of day that was part of a day, you would count as one day. So in our culture, right, if I said I would see you in two days and today is Sunday, normally you would think, well, I'll see you then on, on Tuesday. But in a Jewish calendar, if there's any part of the day left, you consider that day one. So if I said today here on Sunday, I'll see you in two days, they would say in those times, Sunday was day one and Monday was day two. So to say I see you in two days meant I'll see you in tomorrow, basically. The other thing you have to remember in the Jewish calendar system is that the Jewish day always started at sunset. So honestly, what in our context, once again, this is Sunday night as you're watching this, it would happen that Monday would start as the sun would set on Sunday night. So a day in the Jewish calendar is sunset to sunset, so dusk to dusk. So with that, you've got to think that that day that Jesus was crucified was Friday, day one. Saturday uh, is day two, and Sunday is day three. Easy for, for them to understand and so what's amazing about this is that Jesus dies on Friday, day one. Saturday, he's a day of rest. And then on Sunday, he rose from the grave. And just another little tidbit for you to think through. If you go back all the way to the uh, cre- a way that God created the heavens and the earth, if you look at how he set things up, uh, day one, as they would understand it, would have been Sunday. That was the day that God said, let there be light, right? And if you go all the way down to day six, is the day, excuse me, is the day that he created mankind. And so as he created mankind, that was on Friday. So think about this way. On the day that mankind was created was Friday is the day that Jesus would die for mankind. As Jesus rest in the tomb on Saturday was also the day of rest and the rhythm of creation. And he would rise on the first day of the week, Sunday, when God said, let there be light. And at what time did he rise? When the sun rose, when the God said once again, let there be light. So yes, Jesus did die on Friday, but he rose on Sunday, which was the third day. All right, question number two is, why would God not listen to my prayers? 
a lot of times people ask a question like this, that they feel like I'm praying to God, but I don't feel like I'm getting any type of response. Why is that? And are there certain reasons why God would not listen to my prayers? As I see it, uh, there's really 12 different times in the Bible where God mentions that how there may be a particular reason why he wouldn't answer prayers. One of them is in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 through 2. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear. Now, as he's talking to his people at this time, he said, look, the Lord could save you right now. It's not that his hand is too short or that somehow his ears can't hear. But what's happening is, is that he's wanting to make sure you know that when you sin, you're basically saying, God, I want to do things my way. I don't want to listen to you. That God's going, okay, well, why don't you just try a little bit that on your own, that there are times where God will remove his hand of protection and even provision over his people to wake them up so that they don't get into further issues along the way. Uh, A couple other places I'll mention, Psalm 66, verses 18 through 19, says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. So what is he saying in verse 18? If I have cherished iniquity in my heart, if I thought this is a good thing, this is acceptable, I don't have any problem with it whatsoever, then the Lord wouldn't have listened to the prayers. So it's not saying that to pray, you have to be morally perfect. Not a chance, because obviously God wouldn't listen to any of us at that point. But if you're cherishing iniquity in your heart, if you're thinking that it's completely okay, and once again, the whole concept is saying, God, I don't need to listen to you. And then if you go to him in prayer saying, God, I want you to listen to me, that's a one-sided relationship that just doesn't work. I'll give you these few other examples really quick. Matthew 6, 5, he says, don't be like the hypocrites when you pray, standing in the synagogues trying to impress people. You get your reward there. Matthew 6, 7 through 8 says, don't heap up empty phrases like many religious people do, just trying to impress God. God knows what you need before you ask him. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your own wrongdoing. So you don't want to pray to him knowing you have a relational issue that you need to work out. Because once again, God's going to say, from his perspective, uh, why are you going to speak to me when I'm the father of you and that other person that you have issues with? 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, did you hear that? God said he doesn't want to listen to your prayers if you're not listening to your wife, if you're not serving her or caring for her. He's saying uh, your, your prayers are hindered when you're not honoring her and showing patience with her. Uh, number seven, James 1, 6 through 8 says it this way, ask in faith with no doubting. For the person who uh, doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So if you're praying with no faith, God's going, well, you're saying these things, but are you really believing that they can take place? Number eight, James 4, 2 says, you desire and you don't have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. He's saying sometimes God's not answering your prayers because you're just not asking them. You're trying to do this all on your own strength and honestly through a lot of rebellious activities versus going to him. James 4, 3 says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So maybe you're praying, but your motives are off and God knows your heart even as much as he knows what you're saying. Proverbs 28, 9 says, anyone who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is detestable. 
Once again, a great example saying, if you're turning away from what God is asking you to do, God, I don't want to listen to you. God is saying, well, guess what? I don't want to listen to your request either. Proverbs 21, 13 says, the one who shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will himself also call out and not be answered. So if you have needs around you that you're unwilling to meet, why do you think God would want to hear your uh, request and, and meet those needs? The way that he blesses us, we should in turn want to be a blessing to others. And then finally, 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says, um, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so we want to pray is according to God's will. Once again, you don't want to pray against God's will, against God's word, because obviously if you pray against God's word, you know that to be against God's will. And so all of these things about when sometimes when God's not answering prayers, it is actually, he's probably answering. He might be saying no, because you're asking with the wrong motives. You're asking in the wrong direction. You're not thinking exactly what God will want to do in this situation. And you're cherishing sin in your own heart and saying, it doesn't matter what I do, but then when you get in a bind, you're asking God to bail you out. That's not prayer. That's uh, someone just trying to get some type of service from God. And that's not a relationship that he's called us to through prayer. struggle with. And you hear it a lot of times. Uh, on some level, it's sometimes people wonder, or worried about someone who at one time made a profession of faith, and now they seem very far from the Lord. And then also, I think there's a fear somehow that we experience that we're worried about, is something going to happen to me one day? So let me give you a few things to make sure that you think about, about can a Christian lose their salvation? Here's a few things. Number one, true Christians don't walk away from the faith. So if you've ever said, well, no, no, I remember someone that really was very um, sincere in their devotion to Christ. And at one time they were very involved in church. They believed the same things I believe, but now they're very, very far off. So did they have salvation and did they lose it? Well, 1 John is a really great book to sort of help us navigate through those thoughts. And in 1 John 2.19, uh, he says this, they went out, he's talking about the people who left the church, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what does that mean? So if someone leaves the faith, if someone walks away and says, I don't believe that anymore, that is an uh, indication that they actually were never there. Now they may have said the right things, they might have gone through the right motions, they may have had the type of um, faith, at least it looked like on the external, that checked all the boxes. But God says, no, no, no. Um, they, they, if they really were of us, they'd have continued with us. They'd stayed with us. But something like what was said in Matthew 13, when Jesus says the parable of the sower and the seed, right? It's like it springs up and all of a sudden it goes away. It might have the external uh, qualifications of looking like someone who's been changed. But deep down, a true, sincere heart of disciple doesn't walk away. So true Christians don't walk away from the faith. But number two, true Christians don't live in continual defiant sin. So obviously as a believer, all of us are going to struggle in sin. All of us are going to have issues that we combat for the rest of our life. But 1 John, once again, uh, in this book, he really speaks to the heart of it, where in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, No one who abides in him, no one who abides in God, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, you may hear that verse and go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble because I've been walking with Jesus for a while now and I continue sinning. What this is, is this mentality of a continual 
defiant sin. It's not someone who struggles in one way and then you struggle again. And it's not saying you have to be perfect. But there's a difference in saying that I struggle with this sin and I am struggling with it. Like I want to stop, but I can't. Like I want it to go away, but I'm, I, I'm, I, it just seems like it continues to linger versus you have this sin in your life and you don't even try to fight it. Now that's different. So if you continue on in sin without any type of remorse, any tension in your own heart to fight against it, that might be an indication that you really don't belong to Christ. Because if Christ was living inside you, he couldn't allow that stuff to continue on unchecked. And so you have to be careful that if you continue on in sin, that God's word is open to you and says, hey, this is what God says about a situation. And you go, I don't care what God says. I'm going to continue to do what I want. That could be an indication that you honestly don't belong to him. True Christians are held in God's hand and he never loses anything. So you have to realize this, your salvation isn't in your hands. Hopefully not because you drop stuff. I drop stuff, right? But if salvation is in the hands of God, that's a completely different thing. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So it'd be a great example for you one time. I've used this with many people who say, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm struggling with whether I'm saved or not. I'm messing up. You have to realize like if, if I were just to take a pencil right now and put it in the palm of my hand and ask you to take it out, you would struggle. There's something about the muscles and the way the hand is, is put together. It would be hard for you, even with two hands, trying to pry it open, that my grasp would be firm around that pen that you couldn't get it out. Now, if that's my grasp, imagine what uh, Jesus' grasp is like. Well, no one, he says, if, if your salvation is in my hand, nobody's taking you out. There's no one able to do that. So because God has given that to you. So once again, salvation shouldn't be in your hands, shouldn't be in my hands because we drop stuff, but God doesn't. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 says it this way, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you catch it? Nothing can separate you from God's love, even your own sin. But if you think it's up to your power, that's a salvation that's able to be dropped because it's not a true salvation that's hidden in the hands of God. Luke chapter 15, verses 5 through 6, speaking of how God carries us uh, as sinners, he, he talks about when that sheep that's lost, that the shepherd goes and finds it. it. says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. So if he finds that sheep, he puts us on his shoulders rejoicing. And it's not like that sheep is saying, well, can I get off now? No, that shepherd has that sheep firmly, securely in his grasp. And in the last few verses of Jude, there's uh, verses 24 and 25. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Did you catch that? That God is able to keep you from stumbling. We can't keep ourselves from stumbling, but God can keep us from stumbling as he holds us in his, his hands. So the question is, can you lose your salvation? 
Not if it's true salvation. Not as from Jesus Christ. Now, if it's in the hands of religion, the hands of yourself, sure, that thing can be gone tomorrow. But if it's a salvation by God, nobody can stop that. This is a question that that comes from a good Bible observer that's saying, you know what, out of all the characters in the Bible that you would think uh, should have given a little bit of reward, a little bit of blessings, it's probably Moses, okay? So you think about all these heroes of the faith, and there are a few that rise above Moses, and yet he had been called out uh, early on in his life to help lead the Israelites out of slavery towards the promised land. He literally leads them up to the line, up to the cusp of the promised land, and then God tells them that he can't go. And so uh, for some people to go, man, is that fair? Like that was his whole job. Like what happened there? So let me tell you what happened. There were two cases uh, where God's people, as they were left Egypt, on the way to the promised land, in the middle there, they're in the wilderness, and they're wandering, and uh, they get thirsty and hungry at different times. Well, two times they get thirsty. The first time, Uh, God tells Moses, I want you to go and take your staff and strike this rock in the middle of the desert and water is going to come from its side. So Moses comes up and he strikes the rock. Water comes from its side. The people drink. Everything's good. Well, they come back around uh, sometime later. Same situation is happening. The people are complaining. They don't have water. They're concerned they're going to die. And so God looks at Moses and says, okay, I want you to go before the people, take your staff, and you can imagine Moses go, yeah, 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 then strike the rock, right? And God says, and speak to the rock. Now, I don't know what you're supposed to speak to a rock. Are you supposed to say Aquafina, like come forth? Like what was he supposed to say, right? So as he's, he's looking at the situation. And so it says that Moses comes out and uh, then all of a sudden they, they come forth and he, he realizes what's happening and he stands before the people and he reminds them, it's, it's your, you know, you're wicked people. Uh, you've been complaining all the time. And so he gets up to the rock and he takes his staff and he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. Well, guess what? The water doesn't come out the first time. Then Moses strikes it a second time, and water does come out. Now, why is that? Well, here's what took place. Uh, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And you go, what in the world? He, what do you mean? Well, not make him holy means you're, you're trying not to let God be set apart. So obviously, if someone strikes a rock with a staff and water comes out, that's pretty miraculous. But if you go up to a rock and you speak and water comes out, there is no question about anybody around there that you didn't do that. God's doing that for you. Now, maybe if your muscles are bulging and you really strike a a rock pretty hard, some people may think, well, maybe God did that or maybe Moses did that. And instead of this moment, what happens is, is that Moses, instead of striking it, or instead of speaking to it, he strikes it. He has to do it a second time because imagine God's going, oh, no, no, boy, you're not getting that this way, right? So he strikes it two times, the water comes forth, and God says, you didn't set me apart as holy. What was happening in that moment? Well, what Scripture's going to teach us is that Moses was trying to get the credit for what God was doing, and God wasn't going to have it. Later on in Deuteronomy 32, 51, it says, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people at the waters of Meribah. So he says, look, you didn't treat me as holy. You broke faith with me. It was in your strength and not in my strength. Deuteronomy chapter three, verse 23 and following 
says that Moses had actually pleaded with the Lord to see the promised land. But if you go all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, literally God walks Moses up there to this mountain and says, you see the promised land? You know how you've been trying to get there for the last 40 years? This is the end of the line, buddy. You're going to die here. And God actually does a private burial service for Moses, this man who chapter 34 says that he knew face to face. And so now, so Moses, after all this, literally can't walk into the promised land during his lifetime. And this is what's crazy. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23, he says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Did you catch that? So Moses didn't treat God as holy. He tried to take the credit instead of giving God the glory. And that's why he couldn't enter into the physical promised land of the land of Canaan. Now he prayed, even Moses in Deuteronomy 3, praying, God, please let me see it. And God says no. But can I also say this, remind you, Moses didn't enter into the um, physical promised land of Canaan, but you know where he went as soon as he died? He went to heaven, an even better promised land. But I also want to show you something that might uh, just kind of be shocking to you. Because I'll ask people, did Moses ever touch the promised land? And people say, well, no, he, he didn't. Actually, he did. That Moses' prayers that he prayed back in Deuteronomy chapter 3, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, God actually fulfills after his death. It takes place in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this mountain by themselves, and he's transfigured up in front of them, and they see this brilliant light around him, and he's just absolutely something to behold. And what do Peter, James, and John see? They see some two people beside him that they know who they are. This guy is Elijah, and this guy is what? Moses, standing on the mountain. Guess where they were? Canaan, the promised land. So you have to imagine, Moses has been in heaven now for a long time. And then all of a sudden, God says, hey, Moses, I got one more assignment for you. I'm calling you back up, man. Come on by to retirement. We're going back down. And he got to put his feet down in the promised land. And can I also say this? While that was probably an amazing thing to know that his prayers outlived him, God answered prayers even after his death. Even better than putting his toes in the dirt of the promised land, he was standing face to face with Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of everything he'd been pushing towards that God was able to see. And so while Moses was not able to go into the promised land physically in his life after death, not only did he able to go to the spiritual promised land, but also God even gave him an extra blessing even years later uh, as he was able to sit there with Jesus himself. Question number five is a very uh, pivotal one for days like these. And this question is this, are we living in the end times? Now, I don't know why anybody would be wondering that right now, as we are dealing with a global pandemic like COVID-19. Uh, there are many people who are sick, many people that are dying, and there's just a lot of fear uh, around the world today. And so a lot of people will go to places like Matthew 24, like, hey, uh, aren't things supposed to get worse, like kind of sickness and what, when it get closer to the end times? And then I'll say stuff like, and aren't there supposed to be earthquakes and different things like that? And then some of you know, there was an earthquake in Utah just a few days ago. And, and, it, and so there's just a lot of people going, are we uh, in the end times? The short answer is this. 
We are closer today than we were yesterday. Now that may not be a satisfying answer for you, but I wanna make sure you do understand that. We are closer today than when we were yesterday. Only God knows the time. Are we getting closer? Absolutely we are. Are there certain signs of the times that we should look for? Absolutely. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said it this way. He says, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars. Okay, do we have that? Check. Rumors of wars. Yep. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up for tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures the end will be saved. So what is this saying? It's saying, look, there's going to be all types of natural disasters. There's going to be things that are frightening the world that's escalating, coming closer to the time of Christ's return. So would you say that we are closer today because of the things going on? Yes, I absolutely we're closer. But also I want you to realize this. Normally, the only time people pull out Matthew 24 is when it's an earthquake that's close to home. Or the only time they pull out Matthew 24 is when it's a sickness that somehow affects them. See, I can remember years ago, uh, living in Greenwood, South Carolina, there was an earthquake close by in Edgefield that wasn't a major earthquake. But when that little earthquake happened and there was tremors in our house, everybody's going, there's been an earthquake. Are we close to the end of times? And it was such a small, small earthquake uh, on the Richter scale that uh, night. But yet, because it affected us, we were all kind of nervous, right? And yet, no one understood that there have been so many bigger earthquakes all throughout the world the last few months. But because they weren't close to home, they didn't affect us. And the reason why I say that is, even in the time when Jesus spoke this, were these things taking place? Absolutely, there were. There were armies rising up against each other, wars going on, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, natural disasters, pestilence. Was all that stuff going on? Absolutely. Are there worse situations than what's going on right now in the United States? Absolutely, they are. And so what this is teaching us in this time is that we are to be ready to be watching the signs of the time and say, are they escalating? Are they getting worse? But I'll say this, for some of the persecution that you may feel like you experience uh, this day, there will be people on the other side of the world over the last 50 years would say, what we've compared, what we've experienced is so much worse than what you've experienced recently. And we're continuing to follow Jesus Christ. So as you see these signs and you go, well, obviously we know we're closer today than we were yesterday. What are we to, be, to do? Well, Jesus said it. I left off in verse 13 of Matthew 24, but let me read verse 14 for you. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Did you catch that? It says, look, uh, if you're worried about the end coming, this is what you really need to worry about is when is Christ going to come back? Well, Christ is saying he's literally pausing the time. He's postponing his return so that we can get out and share the gospel with as many people. And he said, he's not coming back until the uh, gospel has been proclaimed to all the peoples of the earth. So for those of you that are sitting here saying, you know what, I'm ready for him to come back. I'm ready to go to heaven. My question is this, are you sharing the gospel? Who are you getting out to? Are you looking at the unreached people groups of the world and saying, let me be present among them to share the gospel, to send out missionaries there? 
I feel like a lot of people who are longing for Christ's return are just sitting around and debating about when it's going to happen and who are going to be the major players and what country is going to be involved. Really, the countries that need to be involved in your mind right now are the ones who haven't heard the gospel. So what can we do to prepare for the end times? Trust in the Lord. Know that you've read the end of the book. Know that in the end, we will win if we're aligned with him. But also realize this. The best way to make this expedited to see Christ come back is to get out and get the gospel among people who need to hear it. So yes, we're getting closer. Yes, these are signs of the times. But I know this. There are thousands of people groups who have yet to hear the gospel. And so I believe that Jesus has said, even repeated in how Peter said it in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is the picture. Jesus is delaying his return so that more people can hear the gospel, respond to it, and spend an eternity with him. So instead of concerning yourself with trying to pick a date on the calendar of when he's going to return, why don't you get out on the roads, in the countries, and start sharing the gospel with others. So thank you for joining me for this edition of Ask Pastor Trav. These five questions, hope they've helped you. And honestly, I am not the uh, deposit for all the answers in the world. It's God's word. Uh, when we ever have these questions, God's word is sufficient. It's adequate for every single good work, every single question. And so I just hope that you see as we're going to his word for direction instruction, that's what we need most of all. Uh, we'll be doing this at least next Sunday as well. So if you have questions, you can leave them in the comments below, or you can send me an email or send me a message of a question that you would like to know. What does the Bible say? Uh, on our uh, church's website, rockycreek.church, there's tons of resources that we're sending out um, this week regarding our, our services this morning, this, and then other resources to make your time as a family, as you're a little bit more indoors these days, to make sure that you're taking every opportunity for discipleship. Hope to see you next week at Ask Pastor Trav.